The short game is listener-supported on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show and join us on our Discord, head to theshortgame.net or patreon.com slash theshortgame. Welcome back to The Short Game. This is a show about short video games, games that respect your time. I'm Reagan Kelly, and I'm joined this week for our first real episode in 2021. Guys, we're past it. The evil, Are we? The evil is defeated. No. <laughs> and we're, I guess we're, we're, we're either playing the B-sides or there's a second boss. I'm not sure. You can't say we beat it. When you say something like that, Reagan, it's... It's the sort of thing that someone says uh, in a horror film when there's 20 minutes left in the runtime. Uh, yes, yeah. the evil is defeated. Yeah, it's like it's like uh, hitting the serial killer with your car and no one actually checking for a pulse. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're already too late into 2020. We already know that he got back up and is behind us right now. Like, we've yes. already seen that part. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So no one take me seriously with that. But but this is our first episode in 2020, apart from our, uh, our re-release last week. So um, I am glad to be back with you and excited for where we're going this year. And this week, we are talking about a game that we'd meant to cover last year. And it came to us on a recommendation uh, from friend of the show, uh, John of Gaming in the Wild. Uh, and that is In Other Waters. Well, let me say for a minute, just uh, a big thanks to John. I have actually started listening to John's show. It's been a while now that I've been listening to John's show. Uh, And it makes 100% perfect sense to me that this would be a game that would be right up John's alley. Uh, John is, I mean, he's an awesome member of our community. I really love seeing him in the Discord. But one of the things that I really like about John is just how... Uh, sleepy his voice is. Uh, <laughs> John, if you if you guys are looking for the ASMR of video game podcasts, uh, John's podcast is exactly that. He's he's got uh, he's got a he's got a real set of pipes. I, I got to say, I admire John's. Uh, s- s- I don't know what I'm, I don't know where I'm going with this. I like your podcast, John. <laughs> I, I also co-sign that he's got a real mellow vibe on that show. And it I agree. It sort of makes sense. This was an uh, this is a game that he covered right when it came out, uh, I think in April ish of last year. So obviously we're pretty late on the uptake here. Um, uh, but a lot of uh, a lot of this game got a lot of decent press when it came out, uh, you know, got a good write up in, in uh, you know, in Eurogamer and on a few other websites that I follow. Um uh, but I didn't quite like understand quite what I was getting into until I really booted up the game. Uh, and so I think the the, the quick version, uh, the developer of this game, Gareth Damian Martin, this is his first game. Um, previous to this, he was a uh, he does a bunch of things, um, but he was a, a you know a games writer, games journalist, wrote a bunch of things for various places like. Um, Rock, Paper, Shotgun, and Eurogamer, and Edge Magazine. Um, but he also writes about uh, architecture, and he's a photographer. He seems like he's the sort of person who, uh, you know, does a lot of stuff. Um, but this was his first actual game. Um, and it definitely kind of shows his various interests and influences uh, in that it's a very unusual 
game with a strange presentation. Um, the developer calls it a narrative exploration game. Um, and I think for me, it kind of falls as a bit of an in-between point between things like interactive fiction and more graphical adventure games. We can get into what that means, I guess, in a minute, but maybe we should talk about like the, the setup for this game or what it looks like. Sure. So I would almost say that this is a game that is has a distinct UI, and that is a huge part of the game. So the idea is uh, you are not a xenobiologist. You are the AI for a xenobiologist. It's unclear who you are, but you are inhabiting a suit that um, Ellery Voss, a xenobiologist, is using to move around a map. And all you see is the interface. You see the you know, kind of dots on the map. You see all this teal and yellow. Uh, you see the buttons to press to make the suit do things. And all. And what she does is she narrates all of the context, everything she actually sees in the world. So you see a dot on the map. She tells you it's a stalk, an alien life form, the first we've ever seen. Uh, so it's this play between you seeing this really abstract uh, UI, this like very work-a-day alien tech, I guess you could say, and hearing that of everything going on outside the suit. Um, There's no voiceover. It's just text on screen. Uh, There is ambient audio, but a lot of it is a game that takes place inside your head. Yeah. I think that's fair to say. It's the 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 story of the game uh, is pretty intriguing. I thought you know you are uh, so Laura mentioned you are playing as sort of the AI in this suit, but the way that you experience that you know the the, the beginning of the game, the main character, or I, it's hard to say who the main character is, whether it's you, the AI, or Doctor Ellery Voss, an explorer. I think it's Doctor Ellery Voss. Yeah, Ellery You're Voss. You're her tool. Yeah. <laughs> you don't tell the story about the hammer. <laughs> no, indeed. Uh, Ellery is waking up. After, I guess, some sort of um, accident, and she's on this planet that's called uh, Galice 677CC, uh, and she's uh, she's exploring this, this planet that seems to be entirely ocean, sort of doing a like, deep-sea dive, walk around the, the, the surface of this planet, um, and uh, she's searching for her colleague, uh, who was here previously exploring and investigating the, uh, the sort of you know, the, the life that apparently is on this planet. Um, this character that's gone missing, uh, Mine Nomura. Um, so you are assisting Ellery Voss in trying to hunt for her lost colleague. They have a sort of a backstory that's explored throughout the game. Um, and uh, it starts with Ellery sort of you know, saying, oh, oh, you know, I'm alone. Oh, thank God there's an AI here who can talk to me. Um, but it's also clear there's something a little weird about you, the AI, uh, that it doesn't go into, at least not in the beginning of the game. So, you know, we won't be spoiling that stuff here. Um, but, uh, the, uh, Ellery is asking you to help her explore underneath the sea here. And all you see is a sort of a topological map and a very sort of, um, minimalistic UI overlaid on top of that topological map. Um, so, uh, you know, as you're exploring the ocean, um, you'll see a bunch of sort of little pinprick spots appear, and those spots might represent a particular feature of the landscape, uh, or they might represent a animal. And you use a little scanner to scan each of those items to kind of highlight it for uh, Ellery, 
um, and then she'll tell you a little bit about it. And this is one of the things I thought was sort of most interesting about this game's sort of presentation is that it's full of text. It is a graphical game, but it's really, really text forward. Everything you scan, you get a little bit of text, like a like a you know one or two sentence description from Ellery. Um, and there are a lot of things to scan. Uh, uh, one complaint I would have about it is that this does sort of have a lot of that um, slow scrolling text kind of thing going on. Um, that's somewhat helped by the fact that you're almost never just reading text. You're using your UI to scan and move around the environment while that text appears. But there were a lot of times where I was like, please speed up this text. Um, but, uh, you're mostly just sort of exploring under the sea, finding creatures, uh, that, you know, these unexplored, this unexplored planet has lots of different types of life and there's lots of different types of undersea animals for you to find. And you scan those things. And, um, each time you scan a creature, you get a little more information about it. If you scan a creature about five times, you then have enough information for Ellery to add it to a sort of, uh, you know, taxonomy that she keeps back at the base where you can read a more full fledged description of those creatures. And again, I think it's important for people who are trying to visualize this. When he says creatures, he means you get little like a little clump of four dots together mm-hmm. or you get a big circle. Yeah. Like there's it's just circles. It's not there's no, you know, it's not like suddenly you get a picture of a crab scuttling across the screen. Right. As abstracted as possible. As yeah. simple. And you only know it's a crab, a stalk, a shell, a tubular bursting thing. Because she tells you. Yeah. And one thing I think is kind of neat here is it reminds me, there are actually a lot of things in this game that reminded me of No Man's Sky, weirdly Mm. enough, even though it has almost nothing to do with it except for its space setting. But the, uh, well, maybe the color scheme, actually. But the the scanning uh, and sampling makes sense. Mm -hmm. That's exactly where I was going. Yeah. The scanning and sampling is a a big piece of, of No Man's Sky. And that's something you're doing here as well. Uh, One thing I really do like about it is as you're scanning these different creatures, it feels like you're progressing something because you you get a little bit more information about them each time. There's a little drab of text for every time you scan something. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's one of the nice ways that it's kind of constantly spooling out new narrative to you. That's the coolest thing about this game is it has a lot of different ways to give you the story. And if the story is like firing for you, then like you're gonna you're gonna claw your way through it. I, I kind of want to talk about the movement in this game, though. Yes. That's something where I just I mean the the let me tell you a little bit about how you move around in this game. As Laura mentioned, your your view of the world is presented in the form of a topological map, and the movement is kind of a point to point movement. Before you can move anywhere, you have to scan your environment around you, uh, which you do. Now, I I should mention I'm playing on the Switch. So I I do that with one button on the controller to perform a scan. And then the scan pings out like radar um, and shows different symbols on the map. Um, Then you have to use a kind of a radial look control which is done with the right stick to point to a particular symbol on the map. Why are you shaking your heads? 
I'm shaking. I am shaking my head because it's precisely the nonsense. I decided for the first time, I think, on the show to not buy the Switch version and buy the computer version to avoid this nonsense. So smart I'm shaking choice. my head because it sounds yeah, awful. Yeah, very smart choice. And I, I saw a quick thing of someone playing this and went, I, I, a person who has been adapting UI for touch controls, can't figure out how this would be fun on a switch. So yeah, I just it's decided not. to go with Steam. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's yeah, why I'm and that's, who, that's the right choice. Sorry. I have to finish explaining how it works to switch no, pe- to do. people about the switch, but I think it is sufficient to say for Laura for, for that. This is not a game that I would recommend on the switch, even though I, I think I paid a premium to play it there. So um, yeah, that's a problem, but yeah. So you, you ping with a little radar uh, that lights up, nearby um, points of interest. Then you use a the right stick to move kind of a radial scanner that you point at something, uh, but you then have to hold on that thing for a moment. And it's also sometimes a little fiddly if things are, if you have several things around you, because you can only scan one thing at a time. Um, and then once you have something scanned, now you're switching to a movement mode to once again select one of those points and then choose it for movement, which you're doing uh, once again with kind of a radial control. So um, it it should be, and it feels like it could be as easy as just pointing, pointing and clicking. But it's it's like three different point and click interactions to move from point A to point B in this game. And then once you have started that movement, you are still moving very slowly because your your little human that you're driving around like a car. Um, just creeps across the screen. So I could see, I ha- and I have watched this played um, on a computer where like you're basically just interacting with everything by clicking on buttons. And that would be so preferable to the way it works on the, on the switch. So definitely get this one for the computer. So I, I definitely agree. I had some trouble with this as well. I will give the switch port some credit in that it does let you use the touchscreen, and there were some interactions that that made sense for. But a lot of the elements are so small on screen that the touchscreen interactions don't quite work. You know, um, so the the movement thing in particular, though, like a lot of the a lot of the stuff worked fine. Things like uh, managing an inventory of samples, dragging samples into the analyzer, that sort of thing, I could do with either the touchscreen or the gamepad controls and both were totally fine but the movement interaction in particular was so fussy and it just blows my mind that it was it was a two actually sort of three mode process and you had to switch between these modes every time you wanted to move even like these what seems like six inches on screen so you know shane already sort of explained it but just imagine that you had a series of button presses to enter a mode select where you're uh, uh, identify a point that you wanted to go to press another button to exit that mode then enter a different mode select the place where you wanted to move then move to it then exit that mode again and do that every single time and we're talking about you know doing this constantly as you're exploring the movement mechanics in this i understand that this game was sort of going for a sort of a, a, a mellow contemplative sort of you know spending time in nature walking around slowly kind of thing but i really think that could have been um accomplished in a way that wasn't quite so frustrating and that complicated fussy nature is definitely something I can tell the designers going for because they carry that into the 
that is still present even in the uh, main mode. I'm going to say it's the default because it definitely was designed for a computer interface. Mm. But I will say having to do four extra clicks is not bad at all because you have to do a bunch of extra clicks, but it becomes very quick. You, you've you had to do this every time you've used a desktop application. Right. Doing that on Switch, it's suddenly compounded. So that little extra, like, I'm going to add yeah. two or three extra clicks to make this feel alien and like a, a really enterprise piece of software <laughs> yeah is desirable on a keyboard but when you put that on switch the effort just that burden which is like it's kind of like a little bit of an extra papers please burden on the on the, the steam version but like i could see that being just hell yeah no switch, that's actually so. a good that's actually a good pull is that like papers please is an example of like using ui to express an idea right like you know the the kind of complexity if and you're fussiness. unfamiliar that's a a bureaucratic game where you're dealing with a lot of paperwork and a lot of passports and a lot of like fussy movement of artifacts. Mm-hmm. So it makes a lot of sense there too. Just, yeah. just want to explain Papers, Please if you hadn't played yeah, it. Yeah, but Papers, Please, that that's a UI that, I mean, yes, it's conveying something. This is also conveying something. Papers, Please UI is a representation of a tactile experience in the real world. This is an a- absolute abstraction so if I am an AI, then uh, why is why is my thought process in terms of presenting in terms of how the world is presented to me through these kind of sensors and interfaces? Um, why is it? How does it make sense that that is 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 an interface like this? Like how does that how does that track? Like it seems as if like my experience of this world is being filtered through an app, but aren't I an app? I don't know. Wait, have have either of you guys ever used a fish finder on a boat? No, but oh my god, yeah, <laughs> it is. This is like it is just <laughs> as needlessly complicated as this is, and looks very similar. So <laughs> there are an extra like you you look at a fish finder on a boat, and you don't know why there's twenty buttons on it until you try to do anything on it, and there's no labels. So like to me, this person. You know, maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like Gareth has been fishing on a boat and has used the same horrible software and was like, what if this, but in the future, <laughs> like he projected a, a fish finder app with its topological thing and how deep the fish are. And he just projected into the future and was like, <laughs> and added an oxygen meter. <laughs> you know what it Terrific. reminded me of a little bit as I was playing it uh, is that you remember when we played... Um, uh, oh, uh, far loan sales. Yeah, it's a game about like propelling your uh, your weird uh, sort of uh, weird Skip. vehicle that requires a lot of fussy interactions in order to make it go. Um, and that's it has that in common here, and that like making it go, making the suit go across the uh, the undersea you know, landscape requires a lot of little fussy interactions. But what this lacked was that like that game allowed you to have those moments where you've set up these interactions such that now you're moving and now you're really, you know, you had those getting up to speed was fussy, but then once you, once you were going, you could have these moments of, of sort of bliss of like my machine is operating and things are moving. And, uh, and it, you never have that here. Every time that you are, I guess the closest this game has is like once you've explored an area, all of the dots 
are revealed to you. So you don't have to switch mode. You can just say, go here, go here, go here, go here, go here. But it's only when you're re-exploring an area and it just, I don't want to harp super long on just the exploration or, you know, movement mechanic here, but I, I agree with Shane that it is definitely the thing that frustrated me most about this experience. It's a lot of the game. Too. It is. It's a, it's a quote unquote narrative exploration game. And the exploration is very frustrating to accomplish. Um, the, the scanning I thought was like at least, you know, well done enough that like it, 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 it was, it did a good job of delivering the narrative and the text and the description of your, your environment to you. And that is a success here. But the, like the moment to moment of like getting from point A to point B, I never became comfortable with it. Um, and you know, even, even, uh, within a single play session, like maybe you, you, I have those moments where it takes you out to go into like a, like a base. And then I go back on a dive and I would have forgotten the physical interactions I needed to do on the buttons in order to move. <laughs> it was, it was nuts. The, the one person I, when I was trying to decide which version, the one person who I read who liked the switch said it, they felt like it was an alien machine because it was so hard to use. That, <laughs> that I totally was- see. And that I, I can see that immersion being nice, but honestly, like, just buy this on a computer, guys. It's, yeah. it's going to make your life a lot better. Yeah, and, was, and the other thing is, it's no pun intended. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, so it's it's hilarious to me because some of these issues are are ameliorated a little bit by uh, by playing it in handheld mode, where you can activate stuff with touch, but the text is so small. That when you are playing it in handheld mode, it's so teeny tiny. Yeah, the text is small even on a large computer. Um, yeah, I, I honestly, I really do feel like this game would absolutely sing on something like an iPad if the if the controls were just tweaked a little bit more towards touch and it was like all in on touch. But like this is the, you know the gamepad controls not so great. Play it up on your TV if you're playing it on Switch. Because it is just a lot easier to read, in my opinion. The other thing that I wanted to mention is a challenge that I ran into with this game. I'm, I can't 100% blame the game for this. This is definitely at least 50% me and my brain. Um, but I wanted I to mention this. <laughs> that this is, the, this is the game that I have fallen asleep playing more than any other video game I can remember. Um, literally every set time I sat down to play this game. So... To, to explain part of why that is, well, one part of that is that this game has an extremely chill, mellow soundtrack, and I would definitely give a thumbs up to the soundtrack because it accomplishes its goal of creating a lush, chill, undersea vibe, right? It's very, very chill. Um, and it's also got chill visuals, you know, the, the lots of soft blues and greens and occasionally other, other colors as well, but it's just very much like a blue, chill game. I really liked how the there was started off with the kettle drums and then there was the singing fish and then the <laughs> lobster started singing under the sea. Exactly. It's really 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 chill. Love That's that. That's the chill undersea vibes you're talking about, right? Exactly. Under the sea. And what what I found was that and this he's is going to sue us now. The, the other part of of this is that I have been <laughs> uh, the only time I've been able to play video games lately is late at night. You know, basically ten thirty or ten o'clock to midnight, and every and and also I've been very tired lately. And so every single time I have sat down to play this game, every single time it ended up with me falling asleep with the switch in my hands. Um, 
it, it's like the sleep with me podcast of video games. It's just like mm-hmm. quietly telling you a story about fish and then and then blackout and that's it. <laughs> I, I, like, I, 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 it, it, to the point where like my my wife has been like I've been falling asleep on the couch. You've been, you've been falling asleep on the couch a lot lately. What's going on? And it's because of this damn game. I keep falling asleep in the middle of this game. Um, it is a sleepy game, even if you don't have a child. Yeah, I have a four. I have a four or five month old. So um, that's definitely a factor here. Uh, but like my my brain was in open rebellion against this game. Like absolutely. Yeah shut down uh, it was it was it was wild that's actually maybe a point in favor for this game on the switch because i think there is in a lot of people's lives i honestly bet there is a spot for that like sleepy game that you play on the switch a lot of people will read to fall asleep and what is this game if not very very slowly reading a book on your switch so yeah. Like yeah, that's you know you're right. Like it's not dire. So mm-hmm. like there's not there is a mystery. There are things to investigate. But if you take 4 hours to investigate it versus 3, who is going to like yeah. know it's going to come after you? Yeah, and um, I think you you can approach this in a bunch of different ways. You know, you can sort of like mainline it. I've looked at like playthroughs of this game on, on YouTube that are about three hours long. Um, whereas like on John's show, he said it took him 10 hours. And um, I think he was just playing through it at a different pace. And I, I also think like this is a this is a game that allows you to go back. He probably fell asleep. And, he probably did. It's very soothing. Four, I did four or pause. Five hours of that so I, I didn't fall asleep playing it, but I like finished I thought I was going to play like a four hour session. I don't know why I thought this game was going to be a lot more like undersea menace than it was. I thought it was going to be kind of Soma-y. Um, you said aliens underwater and I thought like Cthulhu. I, you know, <laughs> that's what I expected from the tone. Yeah. And then it was just like real chill. Yeah, I was expecting Subnautica. Yeah. Super chill. Very pastel. Uh, you know, some woman yeah. talking to me over while I'm hitting a bunch of buttons. And I played like an hour and 10 minutes and I did turn it off and took a nap because I was so soothed. So, mm-hmm. so I yeah, mean, I think this could be like if you need a video game to fall asleep to, this is the most successful at that I have ever seen. Um, now, whether that's a plus or a minus for you is going to depend on where it's going to fall in your life. But like, hey, I I now know with 100% certainty, if I want to fall asleep in 45 minutes, I know exactly what to do. Um, so it's it's a weird one. I, I And you won't get mad. It's not like no, you're no. going to be mad that you're bored. You're just going to be lulled. Yeah, I, I will. I will say like today I play, tried playing it during the day at 3 p.m. with sunlight streaming in through my window still made me sleepy i didn't fall asleep but it still made me sleepy it's very very chill (laughs) very effective very effective super effective (laughs) so um there's still i think other stuff we could say about this game but i think the that kind of gets the point across this is a this is a very very chill game i think it's I think it's really, really unique. And if you uh, are interested in a game that is just absolutely as chill and narrative focused as you can possibly get um, while still being a graphical game, 
you know, then, you know, check this game out. It's uh, it's UI. Like if you look up screenshots, you're immediately going to get a sense of what this game's UI is like. And it's unlike anything else I've played. It looks, I mean, you know, Laura's comparison to a fish finder is pretty apt, but like I kind of thought it, it reminded me of like really designery posters. Oh yeah, yeah. It's got the, I, I sat there and I looked at this and I was like, this guy's looked at the same, like, there's a look of the very thin lines mm-hmm. and the the yellow on teal. Like, this is a very, I wouldn't say it's a trendy-looking game, but mm-hmm. it looks very designer. Yeah, it's it's clearly a game design, or created by a graphic designer. And, I mean, you know, the, the uh, Gareth Damien Martin... Uh, lists graphic designer is one of his uh, one of his jobs that he has held and part of his bio. So in ten years, you'll be able to look at this game and be like, ah, this is of the trends of the two thousands, two thousand ten, like two thousand tens, twenty twenties. Like it is a pinpoint. It is a it time. Does. It feels like a fresh, very current, modern graphical yes, design. Yes, it looks very current. Yeah. There's this idea in graphic design uh, that is this sort of minimalist flat design. When we were in the early 2000s, a lot of the design language for software and for for things was this skeuomorphic uh, kind of realistic three-dimensional-esque design. Um, And as we get into the late 2000s, we've moved from that to this – and I think – I don't know really what the history of this is. I think there's there's a there's a lot of it that came with like GUI design. Um, I want to actually point to maybe Windows Phone um, as being one of the early examples of this sort of flat like the design metro style. UI, the, yeah, yeah, the Metro design language that Microsoft introduced, um, and then you know with later versions of Android, and then actually the the the, the trailing edge of that was the adoption by Apple with iOS 7 where they moved to the same flat UI design and um, this is very much of a piece with that design language uh, but it also what I think is really neat about it uh, it plays with the color in a really interesting way like the different places in the game will have different colors color schemes associated with them um, and it, it and it merges that with this idea of a topographical map. And we've all seen topographical maps uh, of like, you know, if you look up a, any map of a natural area where you, or, or if you're, you, you're a Boy Scout and you did any orienteering stuff, you've seen these topographical maps. So I actually had not seen those two design languages meet. And it was neat to see how cool and clean that fusion was. So I really do like the design of this of this game. It's very, any screenshot from this looks like it could be, uh, the thing on someone's screen in a sci-fi movie. It is very hard to do a two color UI. Mm, Totally. Yeah. Um, especially one with this many buttons and this many gauges, um, and text, um, you know, even just contrast alone, 90% of designers will make something completely illegible. So I got to hand yes. it to him. Like it's, it's hard to do that. And it's hard to, there's a lot of good movement that tells you when things like the, even just the gauges constantly moving up and down. So you don't have to worry about being an on off state. I've seen so many bad versions of this on Behance that it is nice to know, like I, it's nice to look at it. And even if I don't know what the buttons 
do, I know it's a button. And honestly, that is something that this flat design, so many designers fail at that. <laughs> I've just seen, I, I, I see people come in and It's so true. Flat design is really often criticized for making user interfaces that are unintuitive and less usable than older design languages. And it's 100%. because that by by taking these different design elements like menus and buttons and links um, and removing the things that distinguish them from other elements on the screen, just everything becomes, a, it's a lot more difficult to tell if any given thing is a button or an indicator. And I think that actually has something to do with the Switch version here, which is that a lot of these buttons add to the visual complexity because they basically add, their approach to turning these buttons into Switch buttons was to put a tiny picture of a Switch button oh, on no. top of the button and not to like change the button. So there no. there are places in this game where I have to I have to find a, I wish I could present a screenshot to you guys where they there's a there's a button in the game that is like select a thing and the I guess computer version of that button on screen is an X in a circle. And that's something that, you know, people who play games will know from the PlayStation controller. Uh, so what do they do? They put a small A in a circle on top of that X in a circle. So now am I am I using my PlayStation brain and hitting the X button or am I using my uh, Switch brain and hitting the A button? Both are displayed on screen. And <laughs> perhaps as an affordance here, although I don't know why you would do this or not, uh, they have a button by hitting the minus button on your Switch controls. You can hide these button label overlays Honestly, I think that this whole aspect, the 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 sort of UI, should have been rethought from the from the ground up for the Switch, and they just really did not. Yeah, I'm looking at a picture. So many of these things look like Switch buttons, and they probably are not mapped to the buttons that they are mapped. Yeah, it was, it was very confusing and, and yeah. a little cluttered. And, and one thing that's sort of weird about it too is that like if you go to use the touchscreen, it vanishes all of the Switch button labels. Uh, I think, you know, their their idea was like, we only want to show you the button labels uh, when you need them. And if you're using this primarily via touch, they kind of, you know, go away, uh, which I think is a nice impulse, but it would have been much better if they weren't needed at all. Um, I agree, Shane, that like, like this, the, the, the core interface of this game was very designed for the like for the mouse, I think, basically. Um, and uh, everything about using a controller to drive this game uh, there, there were times where like, you know, when I kind of got into a rhythm with like, okay, I hit this button, then this button, then this button to switch between modes and start a scan. Um, and eventually I did kind of get a muscle memory for that. And maybe I, maybe that was something that I, like would have been better in some small way than doing this via a mouse. But like, I, I think the switch version of this game, I've only played the switch version. I haven't played it on a computer, but I cannot imagine that it would not be better in on a simply mouse and keyboard driven kind of setup. I think this the Switch reviews had like a 60% approval rate and the PC ones had like a 90, 95. So wow. I, I think that bears <laughs> out. Like there seems to be a big gulf. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um this all goes back to what we were talking about, the the you know, movement controls and everything earlier, but that it stretches to every aspect of 
the game. Uh, like, it's such a pity. The interface is pretty. It's it is a little obtuse, but it yeah. feels intentionally obtuse, and but it feels like an elegant obtuseness, like yeah, a designed yeah. obtuseness. And I, I I hate to see it. I hate overlays on buttons. I, I feel like that that is a sign that you there's been something something has gone south. Yeah, and it's like it, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense because it's like okay, map in your brain you're having to not just map like okay, A does does something right like A A selects my scanner or something like that. That's not even how it works. It's that like depending on what mode you're in, A will do different things. You know, A on your controller, and so you're and the 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 sort of mystery interface. You know the the whole part of this game at least on pc is that like it has this mysterious interface with unlabeled buttons that you have to figure out what each button does right but then add on to that the abstraction of in order to hit this mysterious unlabeled button i have to press a on my controller while i'm in this mode um so you're like it's not even like there's a button label on the screen that says like a scan or something like that it's like a is going to appear above the iconography that has a rectangle and then a triangle or something like that right and it's it's very very confusing um when i first booted up the game it took me a very long time just to figure out how to move from one place to another um so definitely definitely suggest either playing this planning to use it primarily via touch controls on the switch which is what i mostly did um, and then use the controller pretty much only for certain parts of the movement where the button, the on-screen buttons were too f- small to be practical to use. Or play this on a computer. I think it would be a better experience. And hopefully if this gets something like a iPad port, I think it would work there too. Yeah, I, I think it would work in touch, but it sounds like switches. Yeah, that, not the way to n- go. Not, not what I'd recommend. Um. But I do think overall that I recommend checking this game out. So um, keep an eye on the Steam version of this game uh, because I would recommend checking that out when you get a chance. And so with that, uh, let's move on to what's making us happy this week. Laura, what's making you happy this week? So I have been having trouble reading lately. So I grabbed a YA book uh, that was from 2020 called Ray Bearer by Jordan Afueco. And it is a book that is inspired by West Africa. And it's, it's a fantasy book. Um, I, it's definitely part of this movement to try to, you know, if you read Children of Blood and Bone, um, there's been a lot of movement to have magic set in other cultures. Uh, it's kind of been a big movement in YA. Um, it's coming up to the sci-fi and fantasy for adults, but it's really caught on so far in YA. So Ray Bear is a really cool concept. The idea is that uh, there is a kingdom where uh, the leader of the country has the ability to basically become immune to death, except for old age. And he gets this by having um, different 11 different people swear fealty to him, swear loyalty. And a ray goes out to him, to this person, and the bond between them protects him from poison, protects him from, you know, falling, protects him from burning, etc. And the concept is that this girl who's the lead is poised to become one of these rapers, one of these people who are dedicated to the prince, but her mother has also 
sworn her to kill him. So she has like a curse on her that the second she takes the vow, she will murder him. So it's all about her raising, how she gets out of it, and then what she learns what she really is, of course, because it's a young adult novel and no one is who they say they are at the beginning of the book. But I'll say all of the flavor, um, each of the different uh, loyalists have come from a different city with their own culture and their own traditions. Uh, So you get like cool fashion, but it's not like European fashion. So it's not just ball gowns. It's it's got all the really fun, trashy elements of YA, but it's elevated because it's something you haven't read 80,000 times before. I gobbled it up. I mean, there's it's got everything. It's got, you know, demons and death and people flying and people falling out of windows and it's just all all good stuff that's that's um highly recommend fun. ray bear i yeah, it's, i could it's definitely fun. use more uh ya right now and particularly like breezy short novels i was gonna i was gonna recommend a book as well as part of this but i i kind of thought i'd start with an anti-recommendation uh because i had a weird experience recently uh mine was that i so i was I'd finished with the uh, the um, Gideon the Ninth and Harrow the Ninth uh, books, and those were both fun. Um, and I was looking for more science fiction towards the end of 2020. Um, I was looking for something, you know, something to do as an audiobook. And I just did some Googling for like best science fiction of 2020, and I found the Goodreads uh, voted number one science fiction book of 2020. Uh, which was To Sleep in a Sea of Stars by Christopher Paolini. And I uh, I didn't know this when I first picked it up, but that is the guy who wrote those like Eragon books. He's he's had like a turn and he's trying to like write oh, adult yeah. science fiction now. Um, and uh, it got apparently great reviews and the readers on Goodreads loved it. And it's extremely long and it started really well, but I got 16 hours into this audiobook, which is the exact middle. It is, I have six, I've listened to 16 hours of it and there are 16 more hours to go. And I've pulled the ripcord because this book sucks. <laughs> Sorry to anybody. Ray Bear is 368 pages. <laughs> yeah, that's the shit right there. That's what you need. This, and there's so much plot and it just races through it. <laughs> I never, I never abandon an audiobook. I definitely sometimes abandon books halfway through if I'm not enjoying them. But I never abandon an audiobook because like it's an audiobook. You just put it on, you listen to it, no big deal, right? But like I don't need to go too much into it because I have a recommendation for a book that I have switched to and I am enjoying more, although I haven't finished it yet. Um, but uh, but this one is just, it starts off seeming really interesting. It's a, it's a first contact novel about humanity encountering aliens for the first time and it becomes a galaxy spanning war and it has a little bit of this sort of like vaguely, you know, uh, nodding at sort of realisticness that like the Expanse books do and that like some of the things about how space travel works, although there are like faster than light engines, it just sort of nods slightly at like some slight variation of realism. Um, But by about halfway through the book, it's like there are three alien races and they're talking to each other and there's like the main character is wearing some kind of of uh, like super suit that makes her the chosen one. And it's like all of these, all of these like oh, tropey, tropey tropes. And it just got, it's just not good guys. Like I'm sure there are people out there who love it. Apparently <laughs> on Goodread, there are 45,833 people who thought this was the best science fiction book of the year, but it is not all of them are wrong. It is a bad book and boring. 
Um, <laughs> it is a bad book and it should feel oh. bad. Yeah. So I was like, this sucked. I need a, I need a, I need a guaranteed banger. I need something that's going to like, like help. I need, I, it was raising a flag. And so I decided to pick up a, a book that I believe won the, the, like the best novel at the Hugo Awards. Um, at this year or last, I forget which now, and it's called A Memory Called Empire. And I'm not all that far into it yet, but I can already tell that, first of all, it's a lot shorter than To Sleep in a Sea of Stars, but I'm, I'm really enjoying it so far. Um, a Memory Called Empire is this, uh, it's it's another science fiction novel set in deep space. There's a, uh, it's a, uh, the main character is an ambassador from a system of like sort of uh, unaffiliated uh, space stations that have their own culture. Uh, and it is, has been summoned as the ambassador to this like galaxy spanning empire um, that uh, has a very, very different culture uh, from where, where this main character comes from. And so of course it has a lot of themes about like, uh, uh, colonialism and uh you know and empire and uh and sort of meeting of of different cultures and uh so far i'm really really liking it a lot it has some very clever twists and uh, i'm i'm not going to go too far into it because again i have i haven't gotten that far into it because i i'm only just getting into it after having pulled the ripcord on a book that really disappointed me after 16 hours of my life that i will not get back so um uh, but I would recommend that people potentially check out uh, a memory called Empire. It seems a lot better. <laughs> Don't read <laughs> to sleep in a sea of stars unless you like uh, <laughs> twenty plus hours of punishment. I I think we can keep this going and just all three do book recommendations this episode. Okay, um, book club. Yeah, guys. Uh, so I I found myself really wanting. Um, something that would give me a particular emotional hit that I am often chasing and is rarely satisfied by anything except John Darnielle. Um, mm. So uh, I, if you don't know John Darnielle, he's the author of Wolf in White Van and probably most notably, he is the lead songwriter and lead singer of uh, The Mountain Goats, which is basically him and whoever he can get to play music with him. And... Um, the thing about John Darneal is he's the master of these just really incredibly punchy sentences. And it's it's what he's known for in his lyrics, and it's also very true of his novels. Um, just thinking about some of the like incredible lyrics. I don't know. It, I know all three of you are uh, – all three of us, I should say, uh, are – fans of his but like for those of you who don't know there's like there's lyrics in his in some of his songs like probably his most famous song um no children which is a kind of a meditation on a absolutely uh disastrous relationship uh lyrics like i am drowning there's no sign of land you're coming down with me hand in unlovable hand and i hope you die i hope we both die Oh my god, I just love that guy. Or ooh. <laughs> the Shane, so Shane, 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 too. don't just start the... quoting Mountain Goats lyrics. We'll be here all night. <laughs> we will be here. Ah. Uh, oh, you've seen yes. them okay. twenty times. <laughs> same, same. I mean not twenty, but I've definitely yeah, seen them. Really jealous. Um the second most of any live music performance act of uh, at all. Like I think for me, only exceeded in number of live 
Mm, uh, Ockerville River and Josh Ritter probably I've seen them more, but like, God damn, I, I go to, I go to the mountain goats anytime I can. Absolutely. Well, his first novel, Wolf in White Van, was really good, and I really had been meaning to read uh, his second, which is called Universal Harvester. Um, I will. I, I don't think I've ever talked about Wolf in White Van on on this show, and so I'll just spend a moment to tell you it's it's this story about a like a reclusive game designer who makes this incredible play by mail RPG, and it's. Uh, and his, it, it's also about his face is horribly disfigured and it's about the story of how that came to happen and, and about his life. And the, that book is incredible. And I think this is the perfect time to read it if you're out there, because this is a book that's about the power of escape and escapism and, uh, about, uh, about why, why we turn to some fiction, things like video games, things like science fiction or Conan, the barbarian comics. Why do we turn to those things in dark times? And so that book is absolutely amazing. Um, I have, I, I, I'm not, I'm not quite as high on this, his second novel, but I am so glad I'm reading it right now. Like this one, universal harvester is uh, a really intriguing second book. Um, It's, Kind of its plot kind of moves between different times. Uh, starts in the 1990s uh, about this kind of um, aimless, underemployed guy working in a in a VHS rental store. This guy named Je- Jeremy, and he starts finding uh, people start bringing back tapes that have. Uh, these VHS tapes where unsettling clips have been spliced into the middle of these VHS tapes. Um, very strange stuff. And we're also, we also see um, a later, a uh, kind of a housewife um, in the 1970s who sort of falls in with a, a cult that's led by this homeless drifter. Um, and then in addition to that, there's a, a, another story that is kind of woven in here in the present day with a retired couple and their two college age children who have the retired couple have kind of bought a farm out in the middle of nowhere. And the two children are coming to stay with them over the summer vacation. And they discover, uh, a cache of, similar dis- similar disturbing videos in the basement of the farmhouse um no not in a in a it, not in a basement in a in a garbage bag in a abandoned car on the farm property uh in the trunk and all of this is kind of laced through with this kind of mysterious narrator who is telling this entire story and i don't want to get too much into any of the ways in which these stories are connected because for me a lot of the the nice thing about this book is he's telling a much more interesting, um, more tangled story. Uh, Wolf in White Van has uh, this incredible central mystery that um, isn't so much a mystery as it is just a a why. And and here there's a lot more mysteriously open questions in this in this book. 
um, he is using a lot of the the kind of writing that you see in horror um, to tell a story that is really not. Once you get into it, it's not horror. It's it, it, it but it, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to say that much more about the book because I feel like it um, it wouldn't really help the experience of it. But it is a very enjoyable read, and it has uh, it has that exact kind of punchy quality that all of John Darnielle's writing has. So I totally recommend this. It's one. been a few years, but I read that, uh, or rather, did an audiobook of it on a log drive with Jamie and. Uh, I really enjoyed it because John Darnielle and she enjoyed it, I think, because it kind of appealed to her like true crime type of interests. Like it has it has the feeling at times of like a like a good true crime thing, even though it's obviously not true crime. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. It has. Well, there is definitely some crime uh, committed in here. It's not true crime because it's a novel, of course, but exactly. uh, <laughs> it has the uh, it has that kind of. um that kind of investigative element to some of the stories. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really good. Yeah. So uh, listeners, thank you for joining us on this episode of the short game. Uh, you can find us on the internet at www.theshortgame.net where you'll find a contact form and all the other ways to get in touch with us. You'll find us on Twitter at underscore short game, email us info at the short game.net. Uh, now would be a great time to let us know what games you are looking forward to in 2021. What should we be tracking? What seems like it might be a good short game game that might be coming up in the new year. So we've still got a few things from the old year that we are hoping to co- go back and cover things that we missed or got bumped off of our schedule but uh but we would love to sort of start making a calendar of upcoming releases so uh let us know what's what's on your list we want to hear from you uh you can also talk to us about that sort of thing on our discord we have a discord community of patrons of the show uh, so you can go to patreon.com slash the short game and every supporter of the show at even just a dollar a month uh, gets instant access to our discord and that's where we plan the show we talk about the games that we're playing uh, right now, we're trying to organize a co-op uh, a play of the re-released Scott Pilgrim game, uh, you know, things like that. So if you want to join us there, we'd love to have you. Uh, Patreon.com slash the short game. Uh, and of course, you can find me on Twitter at Reagan K. That's R-A-Y-G-A-N-K. Laura, where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter at Laura J. Nash. And Shane, where can people find you? I'm also on Twitter at 8BitShane. And listeners, thank you for joining us on this episode of The Short Game. And I'll go ahead and take us into it. Radio voice. Radio voice. Radio voice. Yes. Ah. Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Ah. That that was it. That was her lamentations right there. <laughs> that was I was trying to make a lamentation sound. <laughs> no, no, no. Lamentation, not lamb sounds. Lamentation. Oh, not lamb imitation. <laughs> yeah, not lamb imitation. <laughs> Y'all. La- lamentation is short for lamb imitation. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's an abbreviation. Honestly, like I, I, I need a vacation from my two week vacation. It's it was it was it was all. I'm I am I'm hitting a wall. Maybe I'll just talk about that. I, I know we're trying to keep a light tone with making us happy this week, but this has been this has been a week and a half. New in 2021. What's making us miserable this yeah. week? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I, I'm good to go now. Okay.